Sorry, I'm going to have to break off. I'm kind of in the middle of a thing right here. I'm kind of in an emergency situation. With the refugee crisis in Europe escalating so quickly, I reached out to a man who has been working with refugees running for their lives since the genocide in Rwanda more than 20 years ago. I'm in the middle of trying to help 6,000 refugees get on three ferries tonight that they haven't had available, and this is a kind of an unprecedented operation. You're listening to Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. I'm Michael Shoulder. My guest, who spent 25 minutes with me before urgently having to break off, is Kirk Day of the International Rescue Committee, the IRC, one of the most effective refugee aid and resettlement organizations in the world. I reached Kirk Day by phone at the IRC's growing base of operations on the Greek island of Lesbos, where vast numbers of Syrians and others fleeing wars in their home countries are coming ashore as we speak. You were having, for most of the summer, 1,000 refugees come for all of Greece. Two-thirds to 50% came through Lesbos. About two weeks ago, that number skyrocketed to about 2,000 a day just for Lesbos. What happened overnight to just jump those numbers up? We've been telling people that there was every indication that numbers were going to get bigger, and there's about four reasons. The first is winter is coming, and refugees are aware that it's more difficult to make the crossing during winter, so there is an impetus to move now. The second reason is refugees are communicating amongst themselves and they're starting to realize it's safer to come the Turkey-Greece route than, say, the Libya-Italy. So you have actually refugees in Lebanon moving from Lebanon to Turkey to come. So they've gone from Syria to Lebanon and then through their through their yeah. uh, face, is, is it a Facebook page? I understand there is a Facebook page, right? There are some, but some people just, they're not getting real visas now in Lebanon, so they'll go, they just go straight to the airport and fly from Beirut to Istanbul and then make their way down south to Izmir. So, so you just said a key word, a key word, fly. So one of the you know the things that we're reading is that this wave of refugees maybe has a little more money than the last wave. Yeah, yeah. But uh, well, this is like the middle class, and we think we could be hitting towards the end of that because people are beginning to say they're out of money. But so then, one of the other pull factors or push factors is we have to appreciate that there is an increasingly desperation quotient. So after the war has been going on for four or five years inside Syria, people are desperate to get out. And so they're making a run now. What's interesting is the refugees, the Syrians that are arriving, almost 100% are not, repeat, not coming from camps in Turkey. They are straight out of Syria within a week or two. And when you ask them, why aren't you coming from camps or staying in camps in Turkey, they say, well, we talked to the other Syrians and they say, if you have a way to leave, leave. If you stay here, you will waste your money. You won't be able to get a good job. Your kids won't be able to go to school or go to a good school. Well, I'm sorry, that's 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 if they stay in where? Turkey? In Turkey, yeah. So that's other Syrians in camps telling that to new arrivals. And then the last thing, which is pronounced here right now, is that Syrians and other refugees are very aware of the sense going up in Hungary. And they feel that now is the time to move if they want to go that route to make it to Europe. So if you put those all together, it's like a fire hose right now. And so all that together with the coming winter. Yep. Right. We went from 2,000 to 3,000 a day. And last Saturday, we were pretty confident it went to 4,000 refugees arrived in one day. I can't imagine what training could possibly prepare anybody for this kind of jump because it really is certainly unprecedented, I guess, in our lifetime. Although, I guess, you know, the, the movement from Rwanda to uh, yeah. 
uh, you know, yeah. to neighboring countries during that time to Congo to uh, was, you know, of similar magnitude. But that was all on foot. You know, we journalists could even track the movements as they were happening. This isn't quite, you know, once you get into the water, it's harder to track. So what training do you have? Well, I've been doing emergency response for more than 20 years. I mean, I was in Rwanda after the genocide, but I was in Zaire at the place at the time it started, actually. I wrote an op-ed by Candlelight that got in the Washington Post, and I was on both sides of the front line of war thereafter. And I've been in most crises ever since. So when we first came, there was a big deal, like, why should we intervene? It's Europe. And then we came and saw the, um, the emergent water and sanitation needs, and then we saw that it was almost primarily a volunteer-led response, and there was no real system, and we just decided we had to respond because if the numbers did get big, there was no local capacity or wherewithal to respond accordingly. The fear is what we thought was going to happen is happening right now, and there has been absolutely no recognition in European capitals or in traditional donors and funders that this is a crisis that needed significant response. So then everything else is becoming a crisis. So. We have these unprecedented numbers. And then the other part of the perfect storm is it was the height of tourist season. And so refugees have to take a ferry to get off of the islands to go to mainland Greece to continue the journey. All the ferry tickets were completely booked for the past two, two and a half weeks. So no refugees could get off. They put a couple extraordinary ferries on, but it wouldn't take the numbers of arrivals that went that day. So now we have a backlog of between 17,000 and 25,000 refugees on Lesbos. Lesbos' total population is 89,000. The population of Mytilene alone is 27,000. And most of the refugees are in and around the port and the capital. So every single free space is basically taken by refugees, either sleeping rough on cardboard, in parks, on sidewalks, in alleyways, around the port, in the port, along the colonnade. And then some of them have tents. The entire town smells like urine because there's not enough public toilets. And so when the rest of Europe is saying that this is a Greece problem, they fail to understand how it's actually working because this is a problem for these four frontier islands that have absolutely no capacity to respond to this. And on top of that, you take five years of austerity measures and you take the most recent financial crisis and you have a decimated public sector on these islands. There's only three ambulances for all of Lesbos. So you've got three ambulances for how many refugees and the normal population? 89,000 people on the population of Lesbos. Then you have right now between 17 and 25,000 additional refugees on the island, and there's three functioning ambulances. And this is the other thing I would say, as bad as the relief, or slow as the relief effort has been so far, it won't be long before refugees have a better quality of healthcare than local Greek residents. How is that? Well, because MSF, MDM, other organizations are here providing to the needs of refugees and have doctors. And doctors are in short supply on the island for Greece. Give me the geography lesson again. So you said the word has gotten around, especially, and I, I guess Syria is the one country you, you've mentioned more than the others. Is that where the bulk of them are coming from right now? Yes, or 80% are Syrians. Another 14% are Afghans. And that number is interesting because when you break that down, they're primarily Hazara which is a vulnerable Shia group that has been persecuted in Afghanistan for years. And that one, to me, deserves further research because it could be indicative of people starting to vote with their feet about what the future of Afghanistan looks like with a resurgent Taliban. Huh. 
my sense is you've got people mixed in both anti-Assad, you know, people who are fighting against or... It's a, whole, it's a mix. It's, it's a total mix. And, and is it a mix in terms of, uh, of religious division as uh, well? For the most part, I mean, nobody's really talking much about it or breaking it. It's mostly Muslims. And, you know, our point, I mean, this has been a big debate across Europe all summer, you can see, and everyone wants to call them migrants, and we are very outspoken about that. This is an issue that stokes a lot of passions, and we say, fine, you know, clearly there has to be a debate. And if there's going to be a debate, let's debate the terms correctly. Of the entire population of people coming to these islands, according to UNHCR, and based on my time in the camp and those of all my staff, we concur. 85% of all arrivals are bona fide refugees, and all of those are fleeing harm, period. And those other 15%, who are they? You know, they are probably some people looking to have a better life and more opportunities in Europe. And that number, to be honest, is dwarfed. It's not, uh, they're hard to identify, and for the most part, we're dealing almost exclusively with the Syrians right now. So you have, again, this staff of 12, you're beefing it up with, what was it, another 12 expat? You have 12 locals, 12 expats. How many of your people speak Arabic? We have a protection team, and I think we have six to eight of them that speak Arabic. We have additional ones on the way and that we're hiring. But to be honest, with the Syrian population, there's quite a few English speakers. So there hasn't been a time when I walked into a camp or walked along a road where a lot of people were coming that there wasn't an English speaker. So when you personally, uh, when you walk into a camp, who do you talk to? Do you talk to your, your small staff? Do you talk to the refugees themselves? And what well, do you... I just talk to the refugees. I just wander around. And, and usually there'll be English people that are come, speakers that come up to me. On the one occasion where somebody is passionate and I can't understand them, then I'll use one of the refugees who will speak English and translate through them. So I guess one question, you know, we always want to know. And so so many of these people who you're speaking to first, is it correct that they are the ones winding up that we're seeing in Hungary who are then trying to get to Germany and Austria? This is These are the same people? Yeah, of the total refugee caseload, only 1%, 1% will want to apply for asylum in Greece. So out of every 100 people you see, 99 will be trying to make the trip to Europe. And that's because there's just there's no opportunity for them to be self-sufficient in Greece because of the economy? Not really. The main thing when you ask them is that they have family members already in Europe. A lot of them have sent their male members of their family to Europe ahead of time to check out the route, make sure it's safe, to create a foothold, and then send for them to come. And many of these people, from what I understand, I mean, uh, some of them, I, I would imagine, are very poor. Some of them sound like they have been successful business people in Syria and are very resourceful. What, what's your sense from the people well, you're I mean, meeting? this is the thing. People want to describe them as, like, say, a scourge or something like that. For the most part, the people I've seen are white-collar skill sets. I mean, today I was talking to a guy who was an electrical engineer. And they're also coming with money, and people are like, they're a burden on the economy. They were a burden on the local public economy for Greece because they had to provide services that they actually didn't have money for given the financial crisis. But it's important to note that people are making money off the refugees at every stop. For example, the refugees have to buy their own ferry ticket. And just for the amount that they paid from Lesbos, that's probably about 4 to 5 million euros they've injected into the economy. So the ones who have made it there alive still have some money and are injecting money into the economy. Of course, we've heard nightmare stories, and and maybe you've heard them firsthand from some of the survivors of people who did have money and were just left to die in the high seas and were robbed, basically. Have have you heard personal stories from people? 
Yeah, I mean, there are those things. I mean, I think what most refugees who make the trip will tell you unequivocally is the journey over the sea was the scariest thing they've ever done in their life. Can you give me anybody specifically you've spoken to and a story they relay to you? Well, I mean, we did speak to a person and we published these findings. He was in one of two boats that capsized about two weeks ago, and he swam for seven hours pushing a friend who wasn't as good a swimmer along to the shore. And in terms of people like that obviously are just coming with the you know whatever they're they've got on their bodies you know there there, there was an incredible war book a, many years ago that sort of solidified a phrase that we all know the things they carried it was a vietnam war yeah. book by tim o'brien yeah. and you wonder these people who are really running for their lives from syria what are the things they carry is there a pattern that you see anything strike you there's no pattern, but I do think it, we should all stop and pause and think about the things we would carry if we could only take one bag with us on a journey of this magnitude. So we had a staff person that actually did this story, the things they carried, and I started asking people what's in their bag. And they had one 17 refugee who had a pretty interesting answer. And he had some hair gel. And my staff person asked me, like, what, what do you need hair gel for? He said, because I know I'm going to be sleeping rough and out in the open. And if I don't look like I'm well kept, people are going to know I'm a refugee and I don't want that. That's one of the most fascinating details I've ever heard. Yeah. What do we who are just listening now, wherever we may be, what can we do? You know, obviously we can contribute to the International Rescue Committee. Right. Uh, where does the money need to go? Short of ending the war, which doesn't look like it's going to happen anytime yeah. soon, where are you getting the biggest bang for your buck in terms of dollars? Well, right now we're providing emergency water and sanitation needs, but I would say that a refugee crisis of this type is almost unprecedented because their sole intent of the refugees is to move as quickly as they can off these islands. So one of the most important work that we do, as you might know, is protection work. That's identifying vulnerable cases, but you need time to build trust and rapport with people to do that. But we have access to these people at most maybe two or three days, and the question is how can you do that? So there's going to be stories and there's pictures about how poor the humanitarian assistance has been so far, and we're arguably two or three months behind a crisis of this magnitude, but we're catching up. And so people will complain about the lack of food or the toilet conditions or shelter, but they're not vociferous, and they should be, because I've seen them. What they're most angry about is they get absolutely no information about the registration process and how they can get off the island quickly. And so we have found by providing access to that information, we're gaining the population's trust, then we're able to identify vulnerable cases that will come and talk to us. So we're having to be creative in order to meet the challenges of this type of crisis. But the other thing, in addition to providing assistance, I would say that it's time for us to get serious as a country and pressuring our lawmakers to find a durable diplomatic solution to the crisis in Syria. And short of that, we need to dramatically increase the numbers of refugees that we're accepting as a country from Syria. And, you know, I'm speaking to you from Atlanta, Georgia, where the International Rescue Committee really has a major resettlement operation. And I'm and I'm sure right now there's a backlog. It's that people people aren't coming over. And I guess then the question you know, many Americans would have is, you know, boy, these people are coming, many of them from ISIS territory. I don't know how many how many of the refugees you've spoken to have literally been in the regions that ISIS has been moving into and taking over. I mean, some have been from those regions, but also increasingly some are from regions that ISIS is beginning to suffocate and encroach upon. And so people are fleeing before that can happen. So 
like I said, they're telling stories like basically if they could, they would never have left Syria. They love their country and they're incredibly proud to be Syrian. And they realize the burden they're placing on the Greek economy and other economies of the countries that they're marching through. But at the same time, they're, it's really simple. They say it was not safe in my country to live anymore and to raise my family. And uh, just just to go back to the things they carry, and that that hair gel story is still echoing in my brain. Are there any other things they are carrying, you know, that either surprised you in terms of their, you know, their approach to survival and how they're going to survive and thrive in this next stage of their lives? It's not so much maybe what they carry, but it's what uh, who they carry. Can you imagine being so desperate? to have a safe environment to raise your family, that you would take your baby, maybe even a toddler or younger, that can't swim, and maybe you can't swim, and that you don't have a really good life jacket, and maybe at most you could afford only a rubber inner tube, and you hop in a dinghy that's maybe meant for 10 to 20 people, and there's 45 people crowded in that, and the driver has never driven the dinghy before, and you still want to make the journey. How desperate do you have to be, and how much do you want to flee danger in order to make that trip as a parent? I would say, for myself and many of your listeners, we've never had to be that desperate. But these people are, and they deserve our help. You, though, you, after 20 years in this business, you have seen people that desperate, and it might not be getting in a dinghy. I mean, what are some of the other situations that you have witnessed where you have seen that level of desperation over your 20 years in the field? I was in an area in Zaire. It was Zaire at the time, south of this town called Kisangani. When I was with the UN High Commissioner for Refugees and some other organizations, we were stumbled upon 40 to 80,000 people that people thought were dead. And they simply had been having to walk further away from violence that was emanating from the Zaire-Rwanda border. And they'd had no access to clean food, health care, water for more than nine months. That was later used as a training organizations to show what the worst could possibly be. But I've seen the refugee outflow from Kosovo, where many of my friends were, because I'd worked there before the NATO airstrikes. And um, this compares in many ways, but the difference is you're in Europe. And the entire time you're sitting here doing this work, you're asking yourself, how can this be happening in Europe? Right. And based on, again, your practical experience, what are you doing differently now? Because clearly you are a wiser frontline worker than you were when you started. What are some of the things you do now that you wouldn't have thought to do 15, 20 years ago because you just didn't know? Well, I mean, I think the key right now is to think of systemic solutions, right? Everybody is interested in saving that one person who has the most compelling story. But to be honest, there's thousands of similar people every single day arriving on this shore and the shores of neighboring islands. And what this response lasts most desperately is a system to have the refugees arrive in the north and be put in a uh, well-managed, well-serviced transit center, transported in an orderly fashion to the south so that they can be registered, and then in an orderly fashion put on ferries and taken off the island. That does not exist. And until it does, it will be piecemeal and the lives of vulnerable refugees will be put in further jeopardy. Okay, so, so, so as you're talking about systemic, I'm going to read you, I'm just online now and looking at the New York Times, so a couple of, of headlines, and I'll just get your reaction. One says, U.S. revamping Syrian rebel force in fight against ISIS. That's one. Then one says, European leaders pledged to take more migrants. France said it would accept... And this doesn't, you know, this pales in comparison to the total numbers, but France said it would accept 24,000 asylum seekers 
over two years. Britain plans to accept 20,000 Syrian refugees, and Germany set aside $6.7 billion to help new arrivals. So how do you, when you, when you see those headlines? In that equation, the only serious country is Germany. 24,000 is eight days of refugees arriving on the shores of this small island. I think people need to put this into perspective, and I think we would continue to encourage other European countries to step up and accept higher numbers of refugees and provide more support to Greece as a frontline first responder. Now, let me ask you, because I know... Sorry, I'm going to have to break off. I'm kind of in the middle of a thing right here. I'm kind of in an emergency situation. Yeah, just tell me where you're going, and I'm going to let you go. I'm in the middle of trying to help 6,000 refugees get on three ferries tonight that they haven't had available, and this is a kind of an unprecedented operation. Go. We can do this over the next several days. We will alleviate this backlog, and then we can start putting a system in place. Go. Go to it. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Have a good day. You too. That was Kirk Day, field director on the Greek island of Lesbos for the International Rescue Committee, the IRC. You can follow the IRC's work from the field during this escalating refugee crisis in Europe on Twitter, at the IRC. And you can contribute to this organization's essential work by going to their website, which is rescue.org. I'm Michael Schulder. You've been listening to the Wavemaker Conversations podcast. like what you've heard on this episode, you can subscribe to Wavemaker Conversations on iTunes, and you can always find this podcast on the new CBS podcasting platform, Play It. That's play.it. I'm your host, Michael Schulder. Thank you for listening. With Domino's new Piece of the Pie rewards, you earn a free medium two-topping pizza after just six online orders of $10 or more. Need some reasons to order? Throw a half-birthday party for your husband. Happy 36 and a half. Or your cat. Ah! Or get in touch with your vegetarian side. Hold the pepperoni. But we think free pizza's reason enough. Start earning points toward free pizza with our $5.99 mix and match deal at Domino's.com today. Rewards program is open only to U.S. residents 13 and older with a pizza profile account. Only one order per day earns points. Complete details at Domino's.com slash rewards. You must select this limited time offer. Prices, participation, and charges may vary.